The following podcast is sponsored by Financial Sense Wealth Management. To learn more about our investment services, go to financialsense.com or give us a call at 888-486-3939. The nation's gross domestic product exceeded expectations at the end of last year. The U.S. GDP rose 2.9% in the fourth quarter of 2022, despite high interest rates and looming fears of a recession. Japan's Prime Minister Fumio Kishida has warned that the declining birth rate is putting the future of the country at risk. Japan's estimated to have had fewer than 800,000 births last year. In the 1970s, that figure was more than 2 million. A tank battle on the eastern front line, Ukrainian troops firing from machines dating back to Soviet times. Kiev is hoping the western battle tanks pledged today would allow Ukrainian forces to punch through Russian lines and retake territory. But President Biden stressed that sending the 31 Abrams tanks could take months. These tanks are further evidence of our enduring, unflagging commitment to Ukraine and our confidence in the skill of the Ukrainian forces. This is the Financial Sense News Hour. Now, here's the Financial Sense News team. Well, the major indexes notched another week of gains. The rotation back into tech stocks pushed the Nasdaq up by 4.3%. Investors are rushing back into the most speculative areas of the market, everything from cryptocurrencies to bonds and tech stocks. The improvement in investor mood is being fueled by a belief that inflation has turned the corner and the Fed will move back to easy money. The futures market is betting on a quarter-point rate hike next month and the following Fed meeting. Economic reports this week showed a stronger-than-expected GDP number for the fourth quarter, giving investors hope that the U.S. economy may yet experience a soft landing. Hi, everyone. I'm Jim Poplava, and welcome to the Financial Sense News Hour. Bullseye Craig Johnson joins me on the program today. Craig expects the S&P 500 to finish out the year at 46.25. His theme for the year is a hop, a drop, and then finish with a pop. We are now in the hop phase of the market before the drop. After Craig Johnson, Selma Hep from CoreLogic joins me as we discuss the current environment for real estate. And finally, in the big picture with Chris Sheridan and I, we'll be discussing taking down the grid, how current energy policies are going to lead to more brownouts this summer. But first, let's find out what moved the markets this week with Ryan Poplava. Ryan? It was a great week for stock investors. The Dow Jones Industrial Average finished up 1.8%. The S&P 500 rose two point, almost 2.5%. And the NASDAQ Composite rose 4.3%. It's been an interesting earnings season as now 29% of the companies in the S&P 500 have reported results for the fourth quarter to date. And of that number, we are seeing blended earnings for estimates and companies that have reported are dropping as the week passes by. Uh, We started the earnings season with an expected earnings decline of 3.2%, but that has now dropped to an earnings decline in the fourth quarter for the S&P 500 of negative 5%. As of today, according to FactSet, as companies aren't surprising to the upside like was originally expected. But despite the negative results, investors are bidding up stocks, especially high beta and growth names that were down last year. As of Friday, FactSet is reporting only four of the 11 sectors are showing year-over-year growth led by energy and the industrial sector, while the other seven are reporting earnings declines led by materials, 
consumer discretionary, consumer services, and financial services. The rally thus far this year has been predicated on an economic soft landing, the Fed pausing rates by March and earnings holding up better than expected. Let's hit that last one as a few companies posted results and were hit hard initially, but then recovered soon after. We saw that with Goldman Sachs last week, and this week we saw it with Microsoft, which was down 4.6% post-announcing its results Wednesday, but finished the day only down half a percent. Then there was also Intel, which was down 11% at most near the lows on Friday before closing the day only down 6.4%, recovering almost half there as buyers stepped in after the initial reaction. The only speed bump the rally took this week in stocks was a technical issue Tuesday when trading issues led to volatility halts for NYSE-listed stocks. The official explanation was an exchange-related issue, uh, but there was an article from Bloomberg later in the week that reported a staff member left a backup data center system running and stocks quickly recovered on the day. And if you looked at the charts, you would barely recognize that there was any sort of issue going on regarding this January rally. So is it a fear of missing out that is driving stocks higher despite negative earnings? Is it short covering? How about rotation out of non-cyclical stocks into growth and tech? Likely all on accounts, these things are happening. And set to add to these catalysts are corporate buybacks. Announced this week was a major buyback by Chevron, around $75 billion back into its stock, which was announced on Wednesday. We're seeing reports by Goldman Sachs trading desk that we could be seeing record authorizations for announcements this season as this announcement by Chevron was one of the biggest we've seen on record in a long time. A bad economic announcements have been good for stocks as investors reason the Fed will continue to slow the pace of rate hikes. And if economic results have been good, investors reason that's because we're headed for a soft landing. On the economic front this week, the fourth quarter GDP was announced up 2.9%, which helps dispel some of the notion we're in recession, though there were some signs of consumer spending moderating. Durable goods orders in December were up 5.6%. Initial claims are low at around 186,000. New home sales rose in December on lower mortgage rates. And the spending report showed personal income was up and the PCE prices component was up only 0.1% for the month. However, services inflation, which was part of that, was up 0.5% month over month, an area that has been stubborn even in the consumer price index that we've seen for December. The main questions we started the year with remain. Will the Fed slow its pace? Will disinflation continue? Will earnings stop declining? And will consumers stay employed? American Express gave its earnings report on Friday uh, disappointed, but after increasing its dividend and increasing its outlook for 2023, investors rewarded the stock with a 10% gain. Part of the reason for the earnings miss was the buildup of its reserves for credit losses, as we've been hearing from other financial institutions. From a consumer spending outlook, the better guidance from American Express was a welcome addition to earnings this week. On the Fed front, we'll find out more next week as the Federal Open Market Committee meets to announce policy and Powell will likely want to manage expectations after the S&P 500 so far has risen 6% this year and the NASDAQ has been up 11%. We're still looking at 70 basis point inversion between the two and the 10-year yields for Treasury that is often communicated a recession around the corner. 
Employment remains strong, but could that change? For January, as next week, will be some key economic reports on the jobs market with the ADP report Wednesday and the BLS non-farm report next Friday. There have been several layoff announcements this month, while the Beige report mentioned companies are hesitant to lay off as available labor has been difficult to find. Finally, how can stocks keep rising if earnings are declining? We'll have more on megacap bellwether names to report next week as we're in the thick of it this earnings season. Will FOMO, the fear of missing out, continue to bail out the stock prices after negative reports? I'll have more to report as we get some answers to these questions with key earnings, key economics, and key monetary announcements next week. If you're seeking financial advice and how to invest in today's markets, Financial Sense Wealth Management can help. From setting up or providing advice on 401k plans, managing corporate cash balances in a zero interest rate environment, to helping individuals, foundations, and businesses achieve their financial goals. Give Financial Sense Wealth Management a call today at 888-486-3939. Let us work together to help you get on the path to success. Financial Sense Wealth Management has been named as one of the top investment advisory firms in the U.S. by the Financial Times. Let us put our financial expertise to work for you. Call now at 888-486-3939 or email grow at financialsense.com. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Well, we're off to a good start for the year for the major indexes. Will this trend continue? Let's find out. Joining us on the program is Bullseye Craig Johnson from Piper Sandler. And Craig, I was looking at some of the forecasts for the year as we do at the beginning of the year. They're sort of all over the place. You've got some people very bearish. You got some people they're very bullish. Where do you stand? So, Jim, we are in the optimistic camp, and we sort of have an outlook for 2023 that I would define as a hop, a drop, and a pop. And <laughs> where we come up with this sort of Dr. Seuss play on words is that. We think there's going to be a hop in this market, and it's it's unfolding so far for this year. You know, Mr. Yale Hurst should be very happy to know that we're looking at his triple indicator and also his uh, Santa Claus indicator. And if we can close out next week through the end of January, uh, Jim, we're going to have a trifecta of the Santa Claus first five trading days and also the full trading month of January positive. And Jim, when that's happened, uh, the market is higher pretty close to 15% on average, about 85% of the time. Um, I'd also just want to put into perspective for all the listeners out there, why are we optimistic? Well, we're optimistic because the Fed is doing its job, inflation is coming down, 10-year bond yield is coming down, and stocks are responding. And I think that's going to continue to you know, uh, flesh out the hop side of this discussion here. And I think it's going to continue to work probably until you get to about maybe a 3% 10-year bond yield. Then at that point in time, I think investors are going to be worried about growth and the outlook going forward because of the Fed tightening. And that's where probably the drop phase comes into play. But don't worry, Jim, there is going to be a pop when this is all done and sort of runs its course. Because from our perspective, when I go back and I look at history, it's not very often we get back-to-back -back negative years on the popular averages. And that is uh, really rare for that to happen. You have to be thinking about great financial crisis or the uh, crisis that we had seen back in the 70s. 
And I don't think those sorts of situations exist today, Jim. So I'm looking for an up year and I'm looking for 46.25, but we're going to have sort of a interesting trading market with the hop, the drop and the pop. Okay. Well, right now we've, we're in the hop phase. The drop phase may be when the reality sets in that the economy is slowing down or corporate earnings pull back. In terms of a drop, we're currently a little over 4,000 on the S&P. How far down do you think we go from there? I think you would see the drop phase probably pull back toward uh, a very similar level to what we had done in June of 2022. So you're looking at 35, 36, uh, 100-ish on the uh, on the S&P 500. I do not see us breaking below those Oct- uh, October lows at all. And I just think we are forming the ultimate right shoulder low here. And in that right shoulder low will be a fabulous opportunity for listeners to buy stocks. Um, and especially when this is all sort of played out and that pop phase begins, that's going to be a really terrific opportunity because by then you probably got about a 25% sort of advance. And I think it's going to be a fun market to trade, but they're going to have to keep listening to the show, Jim, because this is going to need your advice to help them get this pop, pop and drop right. So right now, Craig, we've got a nice rally going in tech stocks. We've had a rotation. Uh, we're seeing you know, some of the healthcare stocks breaking down and a rotation into tech. Take us through some of the sectors in the S&P and what looks good to you. Well, it's interesting. When I look at what's happening with the various sectors at this point in time, we still think from a total return relative strength work that we do here at Piper that the best place to be is still energy, still want to be into the industrials and also into financials, where I'm seeing a lot of weakness. And again, we had a nice little bounce in the consumer, but it hasn't been enough to reverse the longer term sort of relative strength downtrends we're seeing. So we've been underweight services. We've also been uh, underweight consumer cyclical sector would be the other one. And we've also been underweight the communication media sector as our other underweight. And again, some of those areas have had some pretty good rebounds, Jim. But at the end of the day, I haven't seen enough evidence to say that there's been a meaningful change. A lot of it looks like short covering to me at this point in time. And investors sort of taking off some of the very negative bets that had done very well in 2022 uh, and sort of unwinding some of that here in 2023. Well, let's go back to energy for a moment. Uh, One of the best performing sectors last year. And some people say it's rare you see the energy sector uh, back-to-back strong performance uh, two years in a row, but I don't know if I agree with that assumption. Where, where do you stand on oil and energy for the year? Well, oil and energy for the year. So in terms of, let me answer the question first in terms of back-to-back you know, outperforming years for energy. It did happen uh, in terms of total return relative strength on a market cap weighted basis in 2004 and 2005. We did see back-to-back outperformance years um, for, for the energy sector. Now, in terms of energy itself, it has been a very unusual year. Uh, we have a terrific uh, energy, indiv- a lot of terrific en- energy individuals here, but Tom Marchetti, I was having a conversation with him here today at Piper, And he basically said, this has been a really unusual year. It's been very warm. And we have seen the energy usage way down. Hence, we've seen natural gas prices come down. We have seen oil prices come down. Uh, His viewpoint on the macro side fundamentally is this is really temporary. 
I look at it from a chart perspective, Jim, and I got to say, I kind of agree. We're in downtrends now, but some of the momentum looks a little bit overdone. And I think we're probably due for a bit of a relief rally back the other direction and maybe a trend change, but too early to call it a trend change yet. But I continue to think that as long as oil is going to stay, you know, in the 70-ish dollar range, we're probably going to see the profitability for these energy companies hold up pretty well. And under that sort of scenario, I think these energy companies can do well in 2023, despite many individual investors not thinking that it can. You know, it's surprising. Chevron just beat their earnings. They're announcing a $75 billion share buyback. They raised the dividend 10%. Exxon gave its employees 9% raises. They're doing a 50 billion share buyback. So, I mean, these companies are generating enormous amounts of cash flow. I want to go to another commodity and two questions with it. I want you to give me your opinion on gold, the precious metals in the U.S. dollar, which looks like it's been breaking down. The uh, the weakness in the dollar uh, is, is very clear. And what's interesting is whenever we get sort of a steep rise in the dollar, you know, Typically, we've seen a recession play out, and that's been a topic that we'll have to definitely touch on, too. But right now, Jim, the weakness in the dollar is leading to strength in the precious metals, and I don't see any sort of trend change on the horizon yet for the for the U.S. dollar. It looks like we could trade back toward on DXY, back toward 100. That seems definitely uh, somewhat doable. And if we're going to get any sort of breakout in gold, we're really going to need to see some sort of move in gold above um, probably about above about $2,000, Jim, for that really to be looking like a sustainable sort of breakout. But I think a lot of the move in gold is is really just due to the weaker to the weaker dollar. So would you be investing in gold here? The intermediate term trend for the dollar is lower. But if you zoom back and look at a five-year or 10-year trend of the dollar, the trend is still up. So if I was to play gold, I would play it for a trade at this point in time. I'm not sure it's a longer term sort of buy and hold. Again, we'd need to see some sort of clear break above 2000 uh, in gold for that really to be a sustained breakout. But the trend is still higher for the dollar, Jim, longer term. And we got to keep that in mind. So as we take a look at what the Fed's doing, it's widely expected the next meeting, they're going to raise a quarter point, meeting after that, a quarter of a point, and then maybe go on pause if the inflation numbers continue to come down. How do you guys view the inflation outlook as you look forward? I let the market sort of explain it to us uh, at this point in time. And I look at housing stocks are doing and I look what uh, consumer cyclicals are doing. And as I look at the world interest rate sort of probabilities out there at this point in time, you're exactly right. 25 basis points is is priced in already at this point in time. About 82% probability of another 25 in March is priced in. And then, Jim, sort of after that, it sort of begins to decline. I think the inflation uh, is coming down. And I think that as you work your way toward the end of 2023, we're probably getting closer to that kind of two, three percent type inflation number, closer to what the Fed is looking for. Maybe not exactly there, but at that point in time, I think that we have sort of well, the Fed has probably largely accomplished what it wants to accomplish with this battle with inflation. And whether we go into a recession or not, 
consensus viewpoint is we go into a recession. And if we do go into the recession, Jim, uh, 10 out of the last 15 recessions have lasted for less than a year. And by the time NBER, which is the official uh, declarer of recessions, they basically post-date that to 7.6 months. So by the time you're told you're in a recession, you're probably two-thirds of the way through. So if if this recession is going to be shallow, mild, uh, do you think the Fed goes on pivot or do you think they stay on pause? I think they would probably, uh, they said that they're going to be tough with inflation. They don't want to be too early with it. I think that they are probably going to go more or less on pause at sort of a higher level. That's also been kind of the history when you go back and you look at uh, Fed rate decisions and those kind of things. Once you've got to their terminal rate, as they kind of talk about, that you kind of stay there for a little bit. And then what ends up happening is growth ends up slowing enough. And you ultimately create, yes, some pain and some job losses, which are very unfortunate. But they accomplish their goal. And once the inflation is extinguished, then they'll start to cut again. And it's not very long after they finish raising rates that they ultimately start to cut. I think it's, you know, the eight-month time horizon is what's kind of been talked about in the past. And finally, Craig, uh, the presidential election cycle, you know, we're already, you're seeing people kind of jockeying for place. Uh, Our own governor of California is expected to be a possible candidate on the Democratic side. Usually in an election year or the third year of a presidential election cycle, it's usually a good year. And your forecast of 46-25 would imply that. I 100% agree with that statement. And if, again, if history maybe just sort of rhymes, maybe doesn't perfectly repeat, you would continue to see equity markets do well. Again, there's so many forecasters out there, Jim, at this point in time that have such a negative and sort of draconian viewpoint on on equities. It, it's a little it's a little hard to, to look at because you look at history, you look at historical returns, you look at Fed cycles, you look at all these different pieces, and we've already been in a downturn for more than a year, and yet people still want to think that the world is coming to an end, and they, they don't see that it's now time to buy stocks. Again, nobody rings the bell at the bottom, Jim, but I guess at this point in time, they should be looking at how some of these returns are playing out and what stocks are telling us because it's not nearly as bad as what people think at this point. So given your scenario for a hop drop and a pop, we're in the hop phase. Final question, what would you be doing here as an investor? Well, at this point in time, uh, I would be playing this market to the upside. And again, cognizant of the fact that we will have to pivot and get ready for the drop. But I think ultimately we could see this sort of hop phase last to about 42, 4,300 on the S&P, which is about another 6, 7% higher from where we are today, Jim. Um, I still think energy is going to be the place to be. Industrials are still going to be a good place to be. But when we get to that pivot point and we get into that range, we could be paring back, taking some profits on things, carrying a little bit more cash and just sort of waiting uh, for that drop to play out. And how will we know that we're close to the drop for all the listeners out there? I think it's going to come down to 10-year bond yields. When we start seeing 10-year bond yields start to approach a 3% number, I think the growth will have been pretty low at that point in time. And that's when investors, I think, will look around and say, huh, the Fed has dealt with inflation, but now we have a no-growth environment. 
And that's when I think equities start to really respond. And then when that drop plays out, I'd be starting to add back to those kind of key positions that you want to own and start to start to get ready for the pop phase. And usually coming out of the pop phase, it can be consumer cyclicals and it can be small cap and it'll be definitely more growth oriented names. All right. Well, listen, Craig, as we close, how can our listeners follow the work you guys do at Piper Sandler? Yeah. I mean, if people are interested, feel free to shoot me an email. You can reach me at craig.johnson at psc.com. All right. Well, Craig, looking forward to riding this hop and we'll get ready for the drop. Thanks so much for joining us on the program. At Financial Sense Wealth Management, we are committed to helping you build, maintain, and preserve your wealth. Contact us today to find out about our comprehensive financial planning and asset management services. Whether you're planning for retirement, taxes, putting together an estate plan, or need assistance in managing a 401k, Financial Sense Wealth Management is here to help. Give us a call to speak with one of our certified financial planners or wealth advisors at 888-486-3939 or go to financialsense.com and hit where it says Contact Us. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Looks like the Fed will continue to raise interest rates. Wall Street is joyous that maybe those rate hikes will get smaller, maybe a quarter of a point instead of a half a point. But what impact will this have on the housing market as we've seen consistent downturns every month in housing? Joining us on the program is Selma Hepp from CoreLogic. Selma, let's talk about housing markets in general uh, we've seen prices come down here in California. Are you seeing this across the board, across the nation, especially in some of those hot markets that we've seen in the past, Vegas, Phoenix, Florida, Texas, areas where we've seen a lot of migration flow? Yeah, first, thank you very much for having me on the show again. Uh, it's a pleasure to to talk to you again. Um, so, yes, yeah, so, you know, when you look at where prices were uh, at the peak uh, of the housing market in spring of last year and where they are today nationally, they are down about two and a half percent. So, you know, with that, uh, with that decline from that peak, we are still, you know, on a year over year basis up about eight to nine percent nationally. Um, there are some markets that have seen larger declines. You mentioned the West Coast markets, Mountain West markets. So uh, areas with larger, largest declines are actually areas in the Bay Area and California, uh, Seattle, some of the cities in Idaho, for example, where we did see a lot of out migration from coastal California. Uh, Austin is another uh, market that's seen uh, a notable decline, also given the uh, migration. Um, and then we have a, a, a number of markets that were really hot during the pandemic because they were second home markets. A lot of folks that were buying were buying uh, second home or vacation properties. And so now with people uh, traveling internationally or, you know, just not maybe spending as much time in those in those places, the demand in those markets has gone down too. So most of these markets, as I mentioned, has a larger decline with largest being, uh, again, Bay Area at about 13% decline. 
decline since that peak. And at this point, uh, even with all of these declines uh, across a number of markets, it's really only eight metros that we can name that have seen a year over year declines at this point. Um, and that's because we saw so much increase in home prices in early months of 2022, that even with this uh, 10 to 13% decline since that peak, that they still uh, tend to uh, trend positive on a year over year basis. I wonder if we might talk about, does this apply to certain categories of housing? You, know, you talk about the McMansion levels, like here in California, you know, a homeowner is a millionaire, so, uh, you know, your standard home, but you're, I'm talking about the homes, four, five, 10 million that we see. A lot of times Wall Street Journal is announcing, you know, even the movie stars are cutting the price of their Beverly Hill mansions. Is it the bigger homes or are you seeing this filter down all the way down to the lower priced homes? So if you look at in the median, in that 50th percentile, which would not only include McMansions, but but your your, your standard home, that's where where we are seeing uh, these some of these price declines too. But again, I I think what it is is it's just the expectation. Maybe maybe there is an imbalance between expectations that sellers had going into the sale of their home versus where the buyers are, um, and and so that 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 driving them to having to cut their expected price because really with with increasing mortgage rate and uh, a home price appreciation that we saw over the last year. A typical mortgage payment has gone up as much as 60%, you know, since the beginning of 2022 till say November when, when mortgage uh, rates peaked at 7%. So that's a huge increase in typical mortgage payments. And so what that meant is that a lot of folks uh, were priced out of their market and their purchase power has actually declined by as much as 30%. So folks that, for example, a typical household with a median household income of about $120,000, at three percent, could afford a home of of about six hundred and sixty thousand dollars, and at at seven percent, could afford a home of four hundred and sixty thousand dollars. And so that two hundred thousand dollar difference, you know, that loss of purchase power has you know fed into declines in home prices because. Uh, you know, the, the competition that was there at the beginning of the year was there. It was no more there by the end of the year. I look at California. I had a friend that bought a house 30 years ago. They, I think they paid 250, 300,000. Today it's worth 1.5 million. And, and that's just a, a standard track home, 2,800 square foot, two story on a postage stamp lot. So I'm not talking about a McMansion here, but it's priced at a million and a half. Selma, who can afford these? Well, for one thing, California is uh, is a very wealthy state. Um, so, you know, we do have uh, a lot of folks that, similar to a friend, have uh, accumulated equity, maybe passed that equity on to their kids, to their grandkids. So there is a lot of intergenerational wealth transfer that we're seeing in California. The other thing is, you know, we do have relatively higher wages because a lot of the job composition that's uh that's uh in California are folks with you know in in tech sectors in financial services in just typical types of job where people have larger incomes higher incomes 
The other thing is that we did continue to see, despite the increase in mortgage rates, we did continue to see uh, elevated presence of investors in California. And those would be actually small and median investors. So, you know, if you think about it, maybe in terms of like mom and pop investors, but also, you know, sort of, you know, like small groups of investors that own anywhere from three to 10 homes. Uh, and that that share of investors actually remained, like I said, elevated in California. And that just speaks to, first of all, wealth creation, I think, in the state. Um, the other thing is, you know, a lot of folks, um, the, the, the um, stock market has done really well, too, during the pandemic. So if you may be uh, cashed out of the stock market, you have all that accumulated cash to put into something. And, you know, again, um, you know, when you look at uh, returns and you go compare returns on different uh, asset classes, uh, housing has done uh, outperformed a lot of a lot of those, despite up and downs that we've seen over the years. So I think people tend to think of housing as a really safe place to put their money. I had an interesting situation last year. I had a client that was getting ready to retire here in California. They were looking at moving to Arizona in the Scottsdale area. And he was shocked to find out that the home prices in Scottsdale were higher than what he had in San Diego. Did that surprise you? Yeah, I mean, um, it does actually, I guess it doesn't really surprise me because you mentioned up migration from California coastal areas earlier. Yes, we've seen a lot of folks, particularly those people that were retiring, right? Uh, and cashed out out of all that equity that they accumulated over time in California. And, and so they had a lot of purchase power moving to areas uh, like Arizona, Nevada, uh, where, you know, um, Idaho, for example, where also, you know, taxes tend to be lower, particularly uh, uh, income taxes. Uh, there's no state income taxes. And so they had uh, more purchase power and, and could bid much over the asking price or much more over what the local residents were able to afford. So I guess it does not surprise me to see that uh, equalization in the sense of the dispersion of different prices uh, uh, narrowing during this period. You know, I went to an investor presentation, oh, a couple months ago. It was a mortgage company. And what they were doing is putting together a pool, like an investment pool, a partnership. And they were making loans here in San Diego because of the housing shortage in California to homeowners that had, uh, in, in the one presentation, the gentleman had like a half acre lot. And he got a loan and he built four little one bedroom units on his property and the city was getting behind it, and they were making loans to do this to make housing more affordable, or at least rental uh, rentals more affordable. Are you seeing this throughout California, or is this just something we're seeing in San Diego? No, no, I think, I mean, I think that's the case across California. You know, I'm in Los Angeles, and there's been a huge e increase in applications for ADUs, for additional dwelling units, which is what you're talking about, uh, because of that, the law that any single family uh, property can add up to, I think, four units, uh, or in uh, in total, there can be four, four uh, units on a property. Um, I think that has, um, you know, because if, if you are just a, you know, traditional homeowner, 
owner, I mean, why wouldn't you take an opportunity to add uh, a little rental income to your to your income flow, right? Um, so I think a lot of folks are taking advantage, or even even uh, adding a unit for a family member, like in-law suites and, th- and things like that. But I think that's you know a lot of folks across the state are taking advantage of that. Now, I know for a number of years, as the price of housing got really expensive in California and boomers started to downsize, head into retirement, you had a migration to states like Nevada, uh, Texas, uh, Arizona, Florida, places where the taxes were lower, the cost of living was lower. Do you see that trend continuing? Or are many of these places, as I mentioned, Scottsdale was more expensive than San Diego? So are are those places catching up with California? Well, I think, yeah, they are catching up with California. Um, and I do think we will continue to see um, out-migration, particularly of uh, retirees, given the lower cost of living elsewhere. But, you know, when you look at, the, you know, like a traditional millennial family or, you know, young family with kids or young family at top of their career, uh, they are still, there is still a lot to be gained uh, from having access to, you know, similar families, uh, uh, work up opportunities, being surrounded by folks that uh, work in the same industry and ga- gaining knowledge from from being around them. Um, so it's not so you know. So there's retirees that you know are doing their own thing, and then there's the younger families that are doing their own thing. So you know, ever since. Um, people started coming back to the office, we have seen a pickup in activity in urban centers in California or even suburban areas of, of, of larger California metropolitan areas. Um, so, you know, it's not all lost to California that all, all folks are leaving. It's just, you know, there, there is, depending on of, of your stage uh, in life and, and career, I think that's what's driving people's decisions to move or not. I want to talk shortly here on the rental market, because I was really shocked at the rents that even some of my own employees have to pay here. I mean, I've never seen rents like this. Do you see that sort of tapering down with higher mortgage rates, uh, inflation coming down? Because that has been a concern of the Federal Reserve about the housing market and the rental market, which is a key part of CPI. Yeah, yeah. No, I think we are already seeing the rate of rent growth slowing, similar to what uh, we're seeing in, in for home prices as well. Um, and so I, I, I think in many areas, rent just became so out of reach for a lot of folks that the number of incoming renters declined and hence uh, the rate of rent growth uh, started slowing as well. And so I think, unfortunately, for the CPI measure, um, the, the you know, fully accounting for change in rent growth takes anywhere for nine to 12 months. So it won't be until summer of this year that we are going to see that reversal that we are already seeing in rent index itself um, in the CPI data. And, and I think that's something the Federal Reserve is, is aware of. But more importantly, just in terms of renters and their ability to pay, I think on a single family rent side, you know, that we're seeing the slowing of rent, uh, but more so even 
even on the apartment rent side, because um, at, at June 2022, in addition to because of increases in rents that we saw and uh, also a lot of uh, household creation that we saw during the pandemic, there's been a huge uptick in um, multifamily new construction. So now you have a lot of these new multifamily apartment buildings that are not, uh, you know, where vacancy rates remain elevated. So in order to get people in, managers of those those rental properties are giving a lot of incentives, such as, you know, maybe two or three months free rent. Uh, and I've heard of that, particularly in Los Angeles. Um, you know, the, the thing is that that may not necessarily be illustrated in rental numbers because it's still renting at the same rent. It's just that, you know, you're paying three, you're not paying for three months. So when you really average it out of a year, you're getting a discount, uh, but but it's not reflected necessarily in rent price data. But, but you know, I do see and hear that a lot of uh, rental apartment buildings in particular are uh, giving more incentives to renters now to get them in because the rents have gone up so much. Selma, are you seeing with mortgage rates jumping up as much as they have that, uh, let's say, buyers are switching to, let's say, variable rate mortgages like a five-year fixed rate or a seven-year fixed rate or 10-year fixed rate rather than your traditional 15 or 30-year mortgages? Yes, yes, that's very true. So uh, ever since mortgage rates, uh, fixed, uh, 30-year fixed rate mortgage went up uh, in the middle of last year, uh, there's been a shift to adjustable rate mortgages and adjustable rate mortgage, uh, like the share of, of all or their originations um, bottomed out in 2021 when mortgage rates were record low and has now increased to the highest level that we've seen since uh, 2008, I believe. Um, so yes, a lot of folks are taking advantage of adjustable rate mortgage, but the difference is this time, unlike you know what happened uh, in the great during the Great Recession or leading into the Great Recession, is that uh, you know when uh, being qualified, uh, a lot of these uh, borrowers are qualified at a full increase in in their mortgage payment. So it's not like they're going to have a um, uh, a payment shock once when their mortgage rate uh, uh, resets, uh, because you know as I said, they've already been qualified at that maximum. So so we're not you know the the issue we had last time around is not going potentially it's not, it, it won't happen this time, but 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 we are seeing people taking advantage of that uh, uh, now as as fixed rate mortgages are so much higher. Let me throw a couple final questions at you. Let's take the case of, let's say, a millennial family starting out. They now have children. They want to get out of a rental, get into a home. Or let's take the case of a retire somebody getting ready for retirement, wants to get out of the big house. What would your advice be to both? Oh, well... <laughs> You know, mortgage rates are coming down, which is, you know, we are already seeing people coming back. If you look at the mortgage application data, they've already, you know, jumped in recent weeks because mortgage rates have come down. So people are already seeing opportunities out there uh, as mortgage rates have come down. Uh, but, you know, I think what the advantage maybe of this time of the year, and I, I always say that because I myself had bought, bought in February of, of 2018, is that if you enter the market uh, when it's not, you know, typical home, a spring home buying season, you're more likely to get a deal um, and also maybe maybe potentially get a, some discount, maybe, put, you know, some 
some, you know, um, seller assist uh, in terms of closing costs or things like that. Um, so it it may be easier to uh, enter the market when there is lo- less competition out there. Um, so, you know, I, I think if one is thinking about it, um, they should certainly consider adjustable rate mortgages uh, as well, and and see what they can qualify and and uh, and and if they can buy a home, you know, now would be probably a better time to to do that. Uh, for sellers too, I mean, I, I think the issue that sellers are are facing, similar action to buyers, is that because mortgage rates are so much higher, that they probably have a lock their their current mortgage in uh, mortgage in at the time uh, that you know they're not willing to give up that mortgage rate, that really really low mortgage rate. So so you know, I I think again, adjustable rate mortgages are you know an option, and people and and you know a lot of the forecasts do anticipate mortgage rates to continue steadily declining. Um, so, you know, if one is thinking about it, there is always potential to refi down the road into lower mortgage rates. So, um, you know, I, I think it really depends of, of you know, why people are thinking about moving. It, is it a necessity? And if, it's, if it is a necessity and they really think they will eventually end up moving, um, that, you know, now is as good time as any. In a final question, if I may, are there any areas or any states around the country that really stand out as being great value for, let's say, somebody thinking of buying a home or moving? Yeah, I think, um, you know, uh, markets that didn't see as much as home price appreciation as uh, we saw here in California, for example, or in Southeast or Texas, um, our markets in Midwest, you know, Midwest like uh, Kentucky and Indiana and Ohio and West Virginia, uh, and and even to some degree Illinois. Um, I think these are the markets where you can still sort of find a deal at this point. Uh, you know, unfortunately, you know, you have weather considerations there as well. Potentially, you know, one has consider has to consider job opportunities too. But with a lot of people still being able to work from home, I think there are some deals to be had in areas like that. So, um, you know, I think for particularly younger buyers, uh, th- those may be places of opportunity. So I guess what you would say is in this kind of market, rates are coming down. You might want to stick to a variable rate mortgage, but housing still a good value. Selma, as we close, uh, would you give out uh, your website? You guys publish uh, just a wealth of information on the real estate market and great, great website. Yeah, so our website is uh, corelogic.com. Um, and if you go under the intelligence, intelligence part of the page, that's where um, my team and, and uh, many other teams, that, teams actually at CoreLogic who do uh, analytics uh, uh, provide a very insightful uh, uh, data and, and stories. And it's I would highly recommend folks uh, checking it out. So corelogic.com slash intelligence. Well, listen, Selma, thanks so much for keeping our listeners updated on the real estate market. Look forward to talking to you once again. Well, we've had a number of guests recently talking about an approaching energy crisis. This is something we've really been discussing in depth since 2020 and why we're likely to see more of these things continue in the years ahead as we continue to push away from baseload sources of power to intermittent sources of energy, namely wind and solar. Today, we're going to hit you with a ton of very sobering facts and some really great insights from a number of people that we've spoken with on our show, including 
Alex Epstein, who's the president and founder of the Center of Industrial Progress, as well as the author of two must-read books, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, written in 2014, and Fossil Future, Why Global Human Flourishing Requires More Oil, Coal, and Natural Gas, Not Less. Jim, you spoke with Alex uh, just a couple weeks back on FS Insight about his most recent book that was released late last year. So let's talk about today's Big Picture podcast, which is really all around this idea of taking down the grid. Well, if you just take a look at, uh, there have been a number of studies that have come out. We're going to cite a bunch of sources you can look and follow along with. But power outages are up 83% since 2000. And we're going to get why you're going to see this go up even further. But Chris, if you take a look at the world we live in today, I mean, you know, the, the 80s and 90s was about the personal computer. All of a sudden, everybody was able to have computing power. But then you take a look at all the electronic devices that we have today. I mean, I just look around our house. We have a smart home. So we control everything with these mini iPads. So at night, I'm charging my iPads. I'm charging my iPhone. I'm charging my iWatch. I'm charging my laptops. I'm charging my Kindles. And these are just our electronic devices. Imagine what happens if California ever got its way and everybody would have an electric car. I don't think that's going to happen. But nonetheless, uh, we are putting more and more demands on the electrical grid because of the devices that we use day to day. And, and those devices keep getting more. I mean, you used to have a flip phone. Now you have a cell phone. Now you have iPads. Now you have iWatches. Now you have Kindles. You didn't have this stuff 20 years ago. Maybe you had a personal computer. And that's not talking about the computers and the laptops we still have. So there's this greater demand for electricity. And the problem is we've ignored our electrical grid. We really haven't upgraded it. And it's an older infrastructure. Then you throw into that, Chris, these weather patterns we get, whether it's a cold snap, a nor'easter, or it's a hurricane or a uh, what we get in California, Santa Ana's, which are huge winds and warm weather that comes in off the desert. So the reason we are seeing more of these power outages, and we're going to get into this, we're replacing reliable sources of energy to provide electricity. I'm talking about coal, oil, uh, nuclear, and even hydroelectric. And we're replacing them with unreliable, more expensive and intermittent forms of energy, which is wind and solar. So you're seeing this outbreak. In fact, uh, one of the things that they're predicting is... Uh, they're called NERC, that's N-E-R-C, that's American Electricity Reliability Corp, is predicting more blackouts this coming summer because as more and more of our power or stable systems like nuclear, nat gas, and coal are retired or shut down and replaced with wind and solar, which is very unreliable. So, for example, just a recent report out of Energy Wire, the upper Midwest Texas, California, and are risking major increased power outages this summer from heat, wildfires, and drought. So, Chris, we're putting greater demands because of our technological society on the grid and then also trying to move to EV vehicles, which, by the way, only work in 
warm weather climates like California or in the the Southwest doesn't work. EVs do not work well in Michigan, New York, or Montana, or Fargo, North Dakota. But we're putting all these greater demands, and then we're making our grid, the power and electricity that we rely on, more unreliable, more expensive, and more unpredictable. Yeah, here's a clip from Alex Epstein. Again, you spoke with him a couple weeks back on our weekday premium podcast, but his book details a large number of the sobering facts that we're sharing with you today. But here's a, a very interesting part of that interview where he discusses why wind and solar just cannot replace fossil fuels. Back in 2014, people were saying solar and wind are cheap fuels. They're going to rapidly replace them et cetera, et cetera. And one of the arguments I made is that's that's not going to happen. One is because when you're thinking about replacing fossil fuels, you need to recognize the world needs far more energy. So you're not just replacing the same portion of, of the same pie. You need to re replace fossil fuels are 80 plus percent of a growing pie. And so the idea that you would really even make a dent in it, let alone rapidly start to replace it, was, was implausible for that reason, if you realize growing need, growing demand. Uh, but then also, if you look at what fossil fuels do and how they do it, solar and wind are just not competitive. I mean, solar and wind, first of all, they just provide electricity, which right now is one fifth of the world's energy. And what I observed in 2014, and what's still true today, is they are fundamentally dependent on fossil fuels. There's no grid in the world that just uses solar and wind and then batteries to back them up or long distance transmission lines to interconnect them. They really depend on reliable, controllable sources of electricity, uh, namely natural gas, coal, and nuclear, and, and also hydro. Uh, but you know, above all, natural gas, because natural gas is the most flexible thing that accommodates the, the rapid ups and downs of, of wind and solar. And so if you just recognize these are not self-sufficient forms of energy, they're very dependent. And then they're just providing electricity, which is just one form of energy. It's different from, say, very concentrated liquid fuel for transportation. Electricity is often not the best way to generate high amounts of heat for industry. So if you just realize, hey, this is not very good, it's not self-sufficient, at providing one-fifth of the world's energy, which is electricity, then you would never think, oh, we're going to rapidly replace fossil fuels with solar and wind. And then if you look at the other alternatives, there are various reasons why. They're not going to rapidly replace fossil fuels either. So once again, that was Alex Epstein talking about why we are never going to be able to completely transition away from fossil fuels, natural gas, coal, and oil because of the fact that we continue to see electricity or energy demand growing. And also uh, another point is just that the energy density uh, when you look at fossil fuels versus wind and solar, you know, wind and solar is not energy, very energy dense. It requires a lot of land and space that needs to be taken up uh, versus a single small power plant that you can use or even nuclear. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, where nuclear fits into the importance of maintaining a reliable electrical grid? Well, this is from a congressional research report that just came out in the last summer. And basically, Chris, the United States has the largest nuclear power plant fleet in the world. We have 93 reactors, and that provides roughly about 20% of our annual electricity generation now. It's declined in the last couple of years to 19.7%. And the, the amazing thing, just in the last, uh, since 2013, We've closed 12 nuclear power plants, Crystal River in Florida, the two San Onofres in California, Vermont, 
There was a plant, Oyster Creek, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, Iowa, and New York. It's bad enough that we've closed 12, but according to the latest study, there are seven more reactors that are due to be shut down here in the next couple of years. Byron 1 and 2 in Illinois, Dresden 2 and 3 in Illinois, Palisades in Michigan, both Diablo Canyon 1 and 2 in California. So while the rest of the world is adding more nuclear power plants, we're actually shutting ours down. And a lot of this, Chris, came in, and you can look at Hollywood in this. We had Chernobyl, and of course, in the last decade, we had Fukushima, and before that, I think it was in the 80s, it was Three Mile Island, and Hollywood came out with the the movie China Syndrome, and it just turned everybody against nuclear. Now, there's never been a death in nuclear in the United States in any of our nuclear power plants, and if you think about it, the U.S. Navy has been running aircraft, nuclear-powered aircraft carriers and nuclear-powered submarines. We've been doing that for over five decades and they have not had a problem. So the problem is the environmentalists all turned against nuclear power and they came up with this basically catastrophism. It was alarmism. It was fear-mongering. And that turned away people, and that's why you're seeing a lot of these blue state governors uh, shut down their power plants. But thank goodness now there's a backlash. I mean, even when you get somebody like an Oliver Stone, whose new uh, documentary is called Nuclear Power Now, uh, are basically saying how these catastrophes basically scared people away from nuclear power when we should have been adding more. And it's not just nuclear power. 25% of all U.S. coal-fired plants will be retired by 2030. You've got Michigan, Texas, Indiana, Tennessee have the most coal-fired plants. They will retire 42% of their plants by the year 2029. And that's going to be about 9,450 megawatts of coal plants that are going to be have already been retired by 2021 and then also by 2022 we're going to retire another 11,778 megawatts of power so the federal regulatory commission reports that 107 new nat gas plants are going to be retired or or built but 130 plants are going to be retired so we're replacing nuclear power. We're shutting down power plants. We're shutting down coal-fired plants. We're shutting down nat gas plants, and we're destabilizing the grid. And that's why they're predicting more power outs at a time electricity demand is on the rise globally. We are headed toward losing one-fifth of our reliable power plants in the next seven years. Like this is where we're heading right now. And we already have huge reliability problems. We're now afraid of the summer and the winter. So it's, and it's mostly targeting coal. So it's just, we just villainized coal. Coal is keeping us alive right now. If we didn't have these coal plants, it'd be an absolute constant. We'd have a third world grid. And that's, that's what, unfortunately, this administration is obsessed with above all is just shutting down coal plants and pretending that unreliable solar and wind are going to replace them. And then it's, so it's, it's, you're destroying your reliable electricity and then you are increasing demand for reliable electricity. And then you can see that a lot of the people in power, they like the idea of what they'll call like curtailment or they have different 
weird names for things, demand management, they'll sometimes call it. But that basically means we can cut off your electricity. So you had some customers last year in Colorado who had signed up for some green thing and they found, oh, wait, we can't air condition below 90 degrees. Or in Spain, they had commercial buildings cannot air condition below 81 degrees. And then you're seeing in different places in Germany, you know, you need to take cold showers. So there's this, there's this desire to centralize everything, make us dependent, and then cut off the supply of reliable electricity, increase demand, and massively increase government control. And it's controlled by people, I would argue, who do not really care about energy. So they're more than happy at the core to deprive us of energy because ultimately they think we're using too much energy. And they also think there are too many of us and we're having too many kids. And so this is the last thing you want is anti-energy, anti-human people controlling one centralized grid. And that that's what we have. And it's, it's heading in a really bad direction. We really need to wake up. So basically, if you look at Alex Epstein, Michael Schellenberger, Robert Bryce, or even the uh, the environmental activists, if you want to call him that, he's, a, he's an environmentalist, but pointing out that green won't work. I mean, all of them are saying that what we're doing and what we're attempting to do for the sake of the environment is not going to work. No. In fact, in Peter Zion's latest book, he talks about wind and solar doesn't work on two-thirds of the Earth's planet. But, you know, we're doing silly stuff like California shut down two nuclear power plants. And now California is buying electricity from nuclear power plants in Arizona. It gets even worse. We're now building solar farms in Arizona to provide electricity to California because you can't build them here. It's like, yeah, this is great to talk about going green, but good luck trying to put up a wind farm off the shores of Malibu or let's say Santa Barbara. It's just not going to happen. So that's why we're going to Mexico to build power plants. We're going to some other place and we can say, oh, look, we're green. Look what we're doing for the environment. Well, we're just transferring it. And it's the same thing when you look at wind and solar. It's very dirty as uh, it's been written in several books about the raw materials in the mining that have to go in, whether it's rare earths and the amount of pollution that is taking place in half of the planet, especially in China. These alt-energy, I don't call them green energy technologies anymore. They're alt-energy, alternative energy technologies, because I don't think they are green, in fact, because of the material intensity of all these different types of, you know, like offshore wind energy being the obvious example. It's something like 13, it requires 13 times more raw materials than a natural gas plant. But the International Energy Agency just put out an amazing report just last week talking about this issue of energy technologies and who are the dominant players in alternative energy manufacturing. And it's all China, whether it's photovoltaic cells, whether it's blades for wind turbines, whether electric cars, batteries, anodes, cathodes. China has a lock hold on almost a complete monopoly on many of those, and in particular on the production of rare earth elements and the magnets that are used in EVs and in wind turbines, the neodymium iron boron magnets. So there's a national security aspect here as well that is not getting the kind of play that it needs or deserves rather. And in some ways, there's just kind of this blithe ignorance of the fact that we're handing our supply chains over to China. I'm not bashing China, but this is an important issue here and it's not being discussed at all. The other thing too is EVs don't work very well in cold weather. And we keep pushing for them at the same time. We're trying to decommission or close our, as we talked about, our nuclear plants, our coal, our nat gas plants, which are more efficient, less costly, and more reliable. 
And as I mentioned, I mean, green is dirty. More towns, as uh, we had an interview recently with Robert Bryce, people don't want the wide swath of solar panels or wind farms around their community. So they're turning them down. Last year in the United States, 79 communities across the country rejected or restricted solar energy projects. 79. The fundamental problem with wind and solar isn't want to, it isn't money, it's physics. The power density is too low. And then when you have low power density, it means you have to have a lot of land. And that's what we're seeing is from Maine to Hawaii, local communities saying, we don't want these projects. There are no big wind projects that are pending in California, zero. And in New York, they're so unpopular that the bureaucrats in Albany are bigfooting the local communities to effectively try to override local zoning. So, you know, these ideas, oh, we'll shut down all of our hydrocarbon networks and systems, and we're going to go to something else. But there is no reasonable plan for what that something else looks like. It's such a myopia around the importance of our energy and power networks that I think it's deeply dangerous, but I fear some heavy prices are going to be paid because of this lack of foresight and lack of understanding of the criticality of these networks. And while we're doing this, China is building 17 new nuclear power plants as of 2020, with the ultimate goal of adding 150 new plants. In fact, China just put into place a new state-of-art thorium reactor. So a lot of the advancement in technology and nuclear power are taking place in China. But you would say, oh, they're going green. Well, not necessarily, because China is building 50% of the world's coal plants. And uh, basically, they'll have 52% of all the coal plants under construction. India is building nukes, 20 new nukes and coal plants. And despite the Paris Agreement, China and India are building coal plants. So that's why this this whole thing exempting half of the world's population from climate change, where all the dirty mining that goes into like for rare earth minerals, cobalt, lithium, all this kind of stuff that's taking place in China So it's kind of like NIMBY. Well, if it's not in my backyard, I can say, well, look, look how environmental friendly we are when we're just outsourcing. It's kind of like allowing Chevron to drill in Venezuela, but not in the United States. The way we are thinking about energy in general and fossil fuels in particular is very illogical. And I don't just mean that people who are uneducated are illogical. I think particularly people who are very educated are illogical. And in, in Fossil Future, I go into this and I, I show that what you know our designated experts, the people we're trusting to help us think through this and to give us expert knowledge, they're obviously committing a very basic error, which is that they are ignoring the benefits of something and just focusing on the side effects. So you would never do this with a prescription drug. You never say, hey, I'm just going to look at the side effects. I'm not going to look at the benefits because you could deprive yourself of a life-saving benefit. And yet with fossil fuels, notice how rarely we talk about the benefits and how often we talk about the negative side effects. And and I argue that the benefits are huge. You indicated, I mean, 80% of the world's energy is fossil fuels, but really in a sense, 100% is because every other form of energy depends massively on things that only fossil fuels can do, uh, particularly things that only oil can do. So that suggests if you understand energy at all, that fossil fuels are amazingly beneficial. And yet we talk about rapidly eliminating them without any focus on the benefits and just focusing on the negative side effects. And that's just as if you evaluated the polio vaccine by just focusing on the negative side effects and not the benefits, you'd make a terrible decision. I remember in, what was it, 2003, 
Al Gore said uh, we had 10 years left uh, to take care of climate change or we were going to die. Then you've had AOC saying we've got 10, 12 years. So it's always this apocalyptic. If we just don't, if we don't do this stuff now, uh, you know, the earth is going to end and we're going to die. Well, it's just crazy. And the, the problem is because of all this alarmism, we're going headstrong into this energy transition without fully thinking it through with critical thinking. As we mentioned, green doesn't work in a lot of places in the world where there's no wind, not much sun, and it is this idea that it's clean when actually it's dirtier. You have to have mining raw materials to make a windmill or a solar panel. And the problem, once again, it's intermittent. It's not reliable. And if you take a look at sort of the, the what I call the prophets of doom, you know, whether it's Gore, Kerry, or Mike Bloomberg, or part of Hollywood, all these guys have huge carbon footprints. They fly on private jets. They own mega yachts, multiple McMansions, and beachfront property. If I really believe the ocean temperatures were going to heat up and the, the water levels were going to rise, I don't think I'd be buying a $16 million mansion on the water or on the beach. So there's an inconsistency of how they're applying this climate change alarm and then the, the way they live their own lives. So none of this is fouled logically. So if you're going to get rid of something that's reliable and replace it with something that's unreliable, more costly, at the same time, you're going to increase the demand for electricity. None of that, Chris, follows logic in any sense. Yeah, and talk about illogical. I mean, imagine if you're trying to phase out fossil fuels, something that you have that we in the U.S. have in domestic abundance, trying to phase that out and then become more and more reliant upon wind and solar, renewable or alt alternative energy technologies, which we do not produce here, right? I mean, if you look, most of the processing of the rare earth metals, of the polysilicon and solar panels, even many of the components that go into wind turbines, I mean, the overwhelming majority of it comes out of China. So we're basically, again, we're just moving back to the same problem that we had in the 70s with uh, becoming completely reliant upon one source or one region of the globe, like we saw with OPEC, for our energy. And th that just doesn't make any sense. It's completely illogical. And that was something that Robert Bryce had spoken about and many other guests on our show have pointed out as well. So what do we need to do? Well, it takes normally about two decades to make an energy transition. So that's why this idea, for some reason, politicians have picked the year 2030, this is all going to happen. I can assure you it's not. I mean, there's no way. First of all, not everyone can afford electric vehicles because they're more expensive. So we need to expand the production of oil and natural gas to get us through this transition. Renewables in places that it works. You might want solar panels in a place where the sun shines. Windmills where it is windy. And then we ought to be moving headstrong into thorium uh, nuclear reactors in smaller nuke power plants. Just as you can put a small nuke on an aircraft carrier or a nuclear-powered submarine, you can do that in small towns. And instead of EVs, 
we should be doing hybrid cars because a Tesla does not get good gas mileage in uh, you know weather that's 20 degrees below zero. So at least if you have a hybrid, you're driving someplace after you use the battery power, the gasoline engine kicks in until your batteries are recharged. So these are the kind of things that we need to do. Energy transitions take decades, not some arbitrary date that politicians just say, well, by 2030, you're going to do this. Or California, by 2035, we're, we're not going to sell gas cars. Really? Uh, you're going to have somebody uh, that barely can afford to live here have to go out and buy an electric car, or basically you're going to force them to take the bus or something else. So once again, there is no rational thought in terms of how this transition is going to take place. And I'm for an energy transition because I am a believer in peak oil. Eventually, the fact that we're going to fracking, the fact that we have to go miles offshore, just tell you some of the larger on-land deposits, uh, most of that has been found and most of the energy that we consume today in the form of gasoline and transportation, because 80% of our transportation fleet comes from fossil fuels, that comes from oil fields that were discovered 50, 60, 70 years ago that are in decline. It's one of the reasons why OPEC production isn't as high as it is, because a lot of OPEC's fields are older fields, especially in Saudi Arabia. So let's talk about some of the investment implications around this. Well, first of all, they're still proceeding with green. So they still want to put up windmills. They still want to put up solar farms and they still want to make EVs. So, you know, we're heavily invested in commodities. So we own copper, we own silver, uh, we're looking at cobalt, aluminum. And then also, Chris, we, we believe we're going to be consuming fossil fuels 10 years from now. And we're going to have energy shortages. The price of oil and that gas are going to get more expensive. So we've owned oil and oil service companies for the last two or three years. And so we're also looking at another major investment is we're going to look at uh, silicon in computer chips because there's a war going on in the computer chip space in dominance of that technology. So you're seeing... Uh, more of our chip companies bring their factories back to the U.S. rather than keeping them in China because we've saw what happened with the supply chain issues. So these are the things that we're investing in. Uh, this is going to be probably one of the biggest commodity bull markets, in my opinion, that we've seen probably in 100 years. I mean, if you look at anything that's cheap right now in the market, it's commodities compared to, let's say, you know, there's a rotation right now out of Staples, healthcare, and they're going back into the tech stocks because they fell the most last year with the NASDAQ down 33%. But I think that is just nothing more than a trade. And I think that uh, we'll have some more problems in the market, as Craig Johnson talked about, you know, in his hop, drop, and a pop. I think the drop is ahead of us, but maybe we won't see it to the end of the first quarter. But anyway, besides that, I just see commodities, Chris, is a space you've got to invest in. You got to, I mean, you want to talk green? Green takes raw materials. You can't have green without lead. You can't have green without silver. You can't have green without copper or lithium, cobalt, all these key materials that go into these green sources of producing electricity, whether it's wind, solar, or some other source. So 
that's where we're invested in because there's a huge amount of stimulus. And I'm talking trillions of dollars that are moving into the space. And it doesn't work without raw materials. Yeah. And it's something that we've been discussing in numerous different guests on our podcast is this uh, idea of a long-term capital cycle is that you can see, you know, for example, if you think about the tech bubble and even the more recent tech bubble that we went through, you know, there's a lot of capital that will over a multi-year time frame flood into a certain sector, bid it to insane valuations, as we saw in 2000, as we saw in 2020, 21, up until the peak in tech stocks. And then what happens is that bubble pops and then capital finds another place of value. And at this point, you know, the place where we see the greatest amount of value is in the commodity space. And it's not necessarily in specific commodities, but in those companies that produce commodities. Those are where the valuations are the cheapest. And you can look at these long-term capital cycles as they move up and down over time, over multi-year timeframes. This is something that Adam Rosenswag has, has pointed out on our podcast. But you know, basically, we're very early into that stage when you look at commodity-producing companies, particularly energy producing companies as well on a valuation standpoint and on a capital cycle standpoint in getting to the point where we go from having too little inventories relative to demand to having excess inventories. We are still very far from the point where all that capital has flooded in and now you see these companies producing so many inventories to the point where their valuations are now too expensive and then they get ratcheted down. So that's something that we're probably going to see but it may take a number of years to get there. So uh, again, what we're talking about, investment implications around these longer-term capital cycles, which we began identifying on our show, you know, 2019, 2020, talking about preparing for inflation, hedging with commodity-producing companies. That's what we're doing here at Financial Sense Wealth Management. And so again, if you have any questions about our asset management or financial planning services, you can get in contact with us by going to our website, financialsense.com, clicking where it says contact us or calling us directly at 888-486-3939. Once again, that number is 888-486-3939. In the meantime, on behalf of Chris Sheridan and myself, we'd like to thank you for joining us here on the Financial Sense News Hour. Until you and I talk again, well, we hope you have a pleasant weekend. The Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any companies mentioned in financial sense or arising out of the use of any material on the news hour. Be advised that you invest at your own risk.